Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. In verse 13, the Holy Scriptures read, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Then they said to him, Then he said, They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fishes. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate. And were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides the women and the children. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today thankful to be able to worship you with the freedoms that we have. And so on this Memorial Day weekend, Father, we just ask that we would not take that for granted, that we would live thankfully, recognizing that the freedom we have did not come free and it came with a price. And so, Father, we just want to pause for a moment and thank you for that, for what a blessing it is to be able to meet publicly without fear, without caution or concern that we might be taken away, imprisoned, or even our lives taken from us, as is happening in so many places in this world. And so, Father, we ask that despite the freedom we have, despite the lack of persecution we are facing, we ask that your church would not be stagnant, that we would not become complacent and lukewarm, for we know that you spew lukewarm out of your mouth, and rightfully so. Father, I pray for this church. Lord, I just pray that you would protect us from the evil one that you would protect your people from the attacks, from his darts, that we would put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand. And Father, I just pray also as we battle just our own flesh in this world, that we would walk in the power of the Spirit so that we might live victoriously for your great glory and name. Father, I pray for the one here today who feels distant from you. Maybe they're living in guilt or shame, for sin that is conquering them when they are to be conquering it. So, Father, I just pray for them that today would be a day of rest on the Sabbath day, that they would see Christ in the word that we're looking at today, the beauty of Christ, the glory of you, and that that would overshadow any doubts or struggles or misery they might be in. Father, this is an important text for us today in our church. Help us all to listen to this text, look at it individually, not pointing fingers to others, but looking at ourselves and examining ourselves to see where we are falling short of Christ-likeness. We'll praise you for it. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. They didn't know what was causing the sickness. What began with symptoms of tiredness, body aches, swelling, 
bruising, and even rotten breath, eventually worsened to open wounds, including mouth lesions, bleeding from the lips, from the mouth, from the nose, and even the ear canals. And yet, no matter what medical treatment they threw at these symptoms, nothing at all would help. Now, the interesting thing about this disease is that it primarily affected a certain type of people. And what type of people was that? Well, it was sailors. And it actually got so bad for these seafarers that it claimed the lives of over 2 million sailors just during the 18th century. It accounted for more deaths than storms, battles, shipwrecks, and all other diseases combined. And yet, sadly, this disease is actually one of the most easily curable of all diseases. The cure doesn't require invasive surgery. The cure doesn't require a special medicine. It doesn't even require a prolonged treatment. It requires one thing and one thing alone. It requires eating the right thing. And what right thing is that? Oranges. Scurvy is a disease that is caused by a lack of vitamin C. And so if you want to avoid scurvy, you have to follow the old classical advice of your doctor, which was what? To eat your fruits and vegetables. Because if you don't, you'll die. See, kids, your parents weren't lying. Malnutrition is a very serious problem. It can stunt your growth. It can warp your growth. It can cause obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and all sorts of terrible diseases. And so, if you think about malnutrition, it's really a form of starvation. Though you are eating until your belly is full, though you feel satiated and satisfied, the reality is you're starving to death. That's what malnutrition is. And so with this in mind, church, I want to ask you, do you realize that we are surrounded by a plethora of people who have had their spiritual bellies filled with all the food that their hearts desire, and yet they're starving to death? And the reason is because they have spiritual scurvy. Now, this problem of spiritual scurvy isn't a new disease. In fact, it actually goes back to the very beginning, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. See, in the garden, there was no spiritual scurvy, none whatsoever. For in the garden, not only were humanity's bellies full and completely satisfied and perfectly nourished, but then Adam and Eve did something that completely cut us off from the source of nutrition that we desperately need to avoid spiritual scurvy. What did they do? Well, we know what they did, but what they really did was they tried to find satisfaction and sustenance apart from God. Which is a whole lot like trying to live off a diet that is completely devoid of vitamin C. You can't do it. It's going to give you scurvy, and it will eventually kill you. And yet that is precisely what the human race has been doing ever since the garden. So the question is, how do we fix the problem? What's the solution? Well, we fix this problem three ways. The cure for spiritual scurvy comes from Christ's compassion, his commission, and finally, his contentment. Let's look at that first one. 
If you've been with us recently in our study through the book of Matthew, then you saw how in chapters 12 and 13, there's been a major shift in Jesus' earthly ministry. What shift was that? The people are turning on him. And because they're turning on him, he's now focusing on preparing his disciples for his absence. Now, what was Jesus doing before this transition? Well, he was, as the Messianic king, he was going around and he was offering the kingdom of God to the Israelite nation. It was promised to them. It was their gift. It was their right. And so he offered it to them. And he proved that he was the Messianic king. How? Through his perfect teaching, through his perfect living, and his perfect power where he healed the sick, cast out demons, and even miraculously raised the dead. And yet, what was the response to all of this proof? He was rejected. In chapter 12, if you remember that, we saw how he was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. And then we saw last week how he was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, and then also by Herod. And so because the nation rejected their king, Jesus begins to direct his ministry to focus less on the nation, but now to the twelve, to his disciples. He's building them up for the point, which is coming very soon, where he will be gone, and they will have to carry on and function without him. So in verse 13, sorry, after hearing about the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod, what does Jesus do? He withdraws from Nazareth and takes a boat with his disciples back to Capernaum. When he gets there, who's waiting for him? The paparazzi. 5,000 strong. Actually, Matthew tells us the crowd was much larger than that because that number only included the men. So if you count all the women and children there, this number could have very likely been four to five times even larger than that, if not more. Now, Jesus' feeding here of the 5,000 that we find in Matthew is actually in all four Gospels, so that's helpful. It helps us identify you know, different nuances and different aspects of the story that maybe one of the New Testament writers leaves out. For instance, in Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus traveled back to Capernaum to rest. And yet, when he finds there, what he finds there is actually the opposite of rest. He finds an enormous crowd waiting for him to get to work. And so what does Jesus do? Does he say, you know what? Get out of here. Go home. I'm tired. No, he doesn't. Instead, as Matthew tells us, he has compassion on them. That's what he says in verse 14. And what did he do? He healed their sick. Now, in Mark's account, it's similar, but a little different. Here's what he says. He says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And so out of Jesus' compassion for the people, we find in Matthew and Mark that he had his twofold ministry, ministry approach that we find all throughout his ministry. He taught and he healed. The two went hand in hand. And this word compassion here, when it says Jesus had compassion for them, that word means to have pity or to have great affection for. Why did Jesus have great compassion, pity, or affection for the crowds? Well, he saw their hopeless and helpless state, and he loved them, as Mark says, like a sheep without a shepherd. And this is actually the entire purpose of his messianic mission. It was to bring humanity the healing that we desperately needed. Now, with this in mind, imagine being stranded on an island which was full of food, but it had no oranges. None whatsoever. There were no trees, no seeds, no source at all 
of vitamin C. Could you survive? Absolutely not. There's no way you could. Okay, but what about this? What if you were there with hundreds of gardeners who really knew how to garden? I mean, they were, they were good at it. Farmers, nutritionists, and a couple of doctors who really knew the science of nutrition. Could you all work together to come up with some super healthy plan, maybe you know, a diet plan or something, to keep everyone healthy and alive? Not in a million years. There's no way you could. So unless you get nutrition from outside the island, or unless somebody brings in what you need, you're all dead meat. There's no avoiding it whatsoever. Sure, you might eat the food there and live for a time, but eventually that scurvy is going to set in and you're toast. The same is true spiritually. The world is a really big island that is a full of a lot of things that we can eat, sure things that taste good, there's a lot of them, but they are all completely devoid of the one thing we desperately need to survive. What is that one thing? Well, in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, as we read before, as Josh read, we find out what that one thing is. And it's what? It's the bread of eternal life. And so unless we have that, we're absolutely done for. And yet, there we were, hopelessly alone on our island, withering away from our spiritual malnutrition, starving to death. And what did Christ do? He compassionately came into our world with the bread of life that we so desperately need. And that bread is what? It's himself, as John tells us. After seeing their helpless state, Jesus compassionately begins to teach and heal them. And then after a long day's work of this, the disciples come to Jesus, and what do they say? They say, hey, it's late, really late, past dinner time. we got to send these people home. It's time for them to go eat. And what does Jesus say to them in verse 16? He says, no, don't do that. You feed them. Why does he say that to them? Well, I think it's because the cure for spiritual scurvy comes from Christ's Christ's compassion, but it also comes from Christ's commission, which leads us to our second point. The cure for spiritual scurvy comes from Christ's compassion, but it also comes from his commission. See, after looking around at the crowds, Jesus looked The disciples looked at Jesus with this bewildered look on their face, and they're like, okay, how are we going to do that? How are we going to feed this enormous crowd? And in Mark's account, they they respond back with a question. They're like, okay, so what are we supposed to do? Go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, we don't know how much a denarii is, at least probably most of us don't, but 200 denarii in today's money would be about a year's wage. So Jesus hears their question, And then he asked them another question. He says, what do you have? They say, all we have here is five loaves and two fishes, which eventually, I guess, they took from some small boy. Poor little boy. Doesn't actually tell us if he gave it. Anyways, then Jesus orders the crowd to sit down orderly in the grass by groups. All right, this is the next part of the story. And then he looks to heaven. He blesses the food, likely with the common Jewish blessing, which they all used and knew from a boy, which went... Blessed art thou, Yahweh our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And after saying this blessing, 
He then enacts the miracle of feeding the 5,000 with just these five loaves and two fish. How? Well, he ripped off a piece and then immediately reappeared back. Is that how it worked? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us is oh so very important. It tells us that he breaks the bread, and then what's he do with it? Who's he give it to? The crowds? The disciples. He gives it to the disciples and instructs them to be the ones who bring the miraculous bread that he's provided to the crowds. And if you think that's a pointless detail, just the way it kind of went, well, you're wrong. That's not. It's not a pointless detail. Think about it. God certainly could have just been like, whammo, and the bread appears in everybody's hand, all buttered and hot and ready to go. But he didn't do that, did he? No, he didn't. And why not? Because he's teaching them a very valuable lesson that they're going to need in his absence. And what lesson is that? It's a twofold lesson. One, of course you can't feed them by yourselves. Five loaves and two fish, you're not going to make that work. No matter how small those little portions get, you're not going to be able to feed the 5,000. And secondly, the lesson is you can only feed them with what I have provided for you. As a Christian, do you ever feel totally inadequate for the task at hand? For the task that God has given us? How about all the time, right? And if you don't feel inadequate all the time, how about some humble pie or a reality check, right? Now think about it. Imagine being on that island and everyone there turns to you and they're like, hey, you got to fix the scurvy problem right now or else. Would you feel unqualified? Yeah, of course. Would you feel like the task before you was literally impossible? Of course you would, because it is literally impossible. You'd look at them and you'd be like, oh, I can't do this. You better find somebody else because there is no way, no how for this to happen. And like the disciples, you'd be right. But now think about this. What if you had access to, you know, a long distance radio where you could call in baskets of oranges that would be airdropped onto that island? Could you solve the vitamin C deficiency problem then? Of course, it wouldn't be that difficult. You get on the radio, hey, we need more baskets of vitamin C, drop them in. Here you go, everybody. Eat the vitamins, eat the oranges, you're good. But you can't do that without the radio, could you? Absolutely not. But pastor, I could never be part of a door-to-door ministry. I would feel so awkward. I wouldn't even know what to say to them. Have you heard me talk? Okay, Moses. But pastor, I could never share the gospel with my unbelieving coworker, my neighbor, or my family member. How on earth do you really think I'm going to be able to convince them to accept Christ? How? How are you going to do that? You're not. It's impossible. You can't. But God, how on earth can I shepherd this church as a sinful sheep myself? How on earth can I possibly lead these people and help them when they are hurting? can't and neither can you all of these things are literally impossible for us to do and if you think otherwise you are seriously wrong we can't do these things any more than the disciples could feed that crowd with a small boy's lunch it's impossible and so what and so what must we do same thing that the boy and the disciples did we must bring what we have to christ 
no matter how small it is, no matter how insignificant we think what we have to offer is, Jesus says, bring it to me. Christ alone is the one who can bless it and enable us to do the impossible. And the second we forget that, boy, are we in for trouble. Do you know what happens when we forget this? We either become ineffective or inactive. That's exactly what happens. When we forget that Christ makes the inadequate adequate, we become infective or inactive. Let's look at that first one. How do we become ineffective? How about a million different ways? How about this? Uh, This is pretty relevant for our culture. Pastors who feed their church a consistent diet of feel-good talks, self-help motivational speeches, or their own personal opinions. Politics. How about that? Do you know what that's like? It's like turning off the radio that calls in the oranges because you think you have a better solution for the vitamin C-less issue. And it's your vitamin C-less coconuts. Hey, this will work. Vitamin C, you know, there's no coconuts in this. There's no, there's no vitamin C in coconuts, but that should work. Let's try that and see if it works. And does it work? No. Not even a little bit. Sure, it might look temporarily like you're feeding people. They might act like they're happy, might act like they're satisfied because their bellies are full, but they're still spiritually starving to death. And church, this is happening all across this nation. So many pastors and teachers, or even just Christians, arrogantly think that they have what the world needs That everything they need to feed our souls and satisfy them is found on the island of this world, but it's not. How about the other one, the inactive? When we forget that Christ makes the inadequate adequate, we become inactive. This is another problem. How does this happen? If you think you're unworthy of the task, are you even going to bother trying at it? No, you're not. If you think your efforts won't change the outcome, even in the slightest, are you going to give any effort? No, probably not, right? But do you know what will make you both effective and active? Realizing that God calls an active, ineffective people and makes them both active and effective, how? Not by their power, by his mighty power. And so, yes, of course, you and I are completely incapable to feed the great crowd that lays before us. But guess what? God isn't. So the question is, what are we waiting for? Get up. Take the bread he's miraculously provided. Go to all the people who have their hands open and drop it in those hands. It's really that simple. That's what we're talking about. We serve a God of multiplication who can take your measly, puny little lunch and serve the nations with it. And how many people in church history do we have? I mean, Jonathan Edwards, I could, I could go through the list of, pe- of one person who started off and it was like, really, me, Lord? And look how they changed the course of human history. Look how many souls were brought to Christ because they were willing to get up, grab the food from Christ, and start dropping it in people's hands. When Jesus and his disciples traveled across the sea for their much-deserved time of rest and relaxation, sorry, this is bugging me, okay, for their much-deserved time of rest and relaxation, and they were interrupted by the crowds, 
as we talked about before, Jesus didn't turn them away, did he? Right? They went for relaxation time. The crowds show up, interrupt that relaxation, and instead of dismissing them and turning them away, being like, it's my time, get out of here. No, he turns in compassion, gives up his time, and serves them. Do you realize that even if we remember that Christ makes the inadequate adequate, we can still become ineffective by our inactivity? We absolutely can. And then, actually, I was thinking about this. I think this is probably one of the biggest reasons why the American church is in such a pitiful state. I think it's why we are so pitifully ineffective. It's because, unlike Christ, we refuse to sacrifice our rest for service. We refuse to sacrifice our leisure for labor. But Christ didn't do that, did he? Thankfully not. You ever hear the expression that 20% of the church does 80% of the work? Anybody ever hear that? Okay, it's not true. Why? It's actually probably a whole lot worse than that. Hey, this was, that was pre-COVID stats. We're in a whole new ballgame here. It's not true because it's worse than that. And it's worse than that. Why? Because many refuse, they just outright refuse to sacrifice their leisure for the labor that lies before us, that God has commissioned us for. When it comes to the Great Commission and being a disciple maker, the excuses for not doing so are legion, for they are many. For example, when it comes to giving, uh, you know, 20% of the church provides 80% of the financial resources because 80% doesn't want to exchange even a measly 10% for their financial leisure that they have. They won't exchange that for the labor. When it comes to making disciples, many complain they aren't equipped to do so, and yet when the church meets to do Ephesians 4, what's Ephesians 4? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the church's shepherd's job. That's my job. You know, the, the teaching around here, it's to equip you for the work of the ministry. But when it comes to making disciples, many complain they're not equipped, so when the church meets to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, they're not there. And so how do they get equipped when they're not there for the equipping? The answer is they're not going to be equipped for, the, for that, are they? Sure, they might pop in on a Sunday morning when it's convenient, of course, and then maybe they've stayed for a Sunday school hour here and there. But the reality is they're not being equipped for the work of the ministry. They're just not because they're not there. And the reality is why? Because they're just too busy. Anybody here struggle with busyness or am I the only one? Don't get me wrong. I'm glad we have online church. I'm glad it's there as an option for the sick, for the shut-ins, but it's not the same thing. You cannot be equipped through watching a little screen of a service going on where equipping is happening. It doesn't work that way. Let me ask you a question. Can I ask you a question? No. Well, too bad. I'm going to do it anyways. If we are going to be effective laborers for Christ, can we do that without ever sacrificing our time, our money, our ambitions, or our comfort? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, think about it. If you want the medical degree, what do you got to do? 
You're going to have to sacrifice time with friends, with family. You're going to have to sacrifice that weekend on the boat. You're going to have to sacrifice those nights hanging out watching those movies. Why? Because you're going to be busy studying so you can pass and get that medical degree. You can't have both. You can't have your leisure like you want it, when you want it, and the medical degree. You're going to have to make a sacrifice there. And so too is it, church, with being an active and effective Christian. If we're going to be an active and effective Christian, a disciple of Christ, we have to make sacrifices when it comes to our leisure and our comfort if we're going to labor for him. If we don't, if we don't, the Bible's clear about this. One day we will stand before Christ and we will suffer loss. Loss of reward. Not our salvation. We're not talking about that. For true Christians, you know, once you're saved, you are sealed by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 1. But we will stand before the Lord and give an account at the Bema seat for what we've done in the flesh. As we saw way back in Matthew chapter 6, here's what, here's what Jesus tells us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We might substitute that with where your leisure is, there your heart will be also. In order to store up treasures in heaven, it's going to cost you some leisure. It's going to cost you some comfort. Think about it. If you're going to love that unlovely person, okay, whether it's at church or the unbeliever outside of the church, you're going to have to put yourself in a situation where you're vulnerable, right? You are. You just are. If you're going to rebuke somebody's sin, right, as Scripture calls us to do as we speak the truth in love, there's a good chance they might verbally slap you and tell you to buzz off because they don't want to hear it. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Okay, I'm the only one. You'll have it sometime, I guarantee it. And if you make yourself vulnerable and love the unlovely, you're going to have to be there when they fail to pick them back up again. And sometimes they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it one bit. And that's going to be really, really difficult. It's going to expose yourself to their anger, to their frustration, to attacks even upon yourself. And if you think all this sounds pretty easy, I can guarantee you've never really done it before. It's not easy. It is stressful, beyond stressful, working with messy people, trying to help them, trying to bring them the bread of Christ, trying to feed their souls. It's anxiety-causing to some degree, right? Like, this is the kind of stuff, if you know, a lot of you know what I'm talking about, where you've worked with messy situations, you lose sleep over it. It's hard. And if you say, you know what, I lost sleep that one time over, I tried to work with that messy person, I've been there, done that, I'm out. Are you going to be effective for Christ? Not at all. To serve Christ requires making yourself vulnerable to others. People who very well might hurt and abuse you as you're trying to serve them. Get in line. The, the line starts with Christ and it goes through the disciples and it goes through the early church and it goes through pretty much every faithful Christian since. And if you don't want that, 
You need to go back and examine what you signed up for. Nobody puts their hand to the plow without realizing what labor is involved with that, right? I mean, the scripture is clear on this. Once you start, like, count the cost. Are you going to follow Christ, even if that means losing your comfort and your leisure? Even if it means it might cost you. Instead, if you shrink back and say, I'll never allow myself to be burnt again by that. I'll never make myself vulnerable to those Christians because I know how they treat Christians. Guess what? Same thing happened for Christ. It's going to happen for you. They hated me. Of course, they will hate you, Christ said. And that even happens within the church. So if you shrink back and say, I'll never be burnt like that again. I'll never make myself vulnerable. You are going to be a totally inactive and ineffective disciple now, aren't you? You absolutely are. Church, I mean this in the most loving way. It's time for some of us to grow up spiritually. To start setting aside much, much more of our leisure time, much more of our money, our comfort, and our ambitions in order to labor for the souls of men who are desperately sick and dying. And we have a good reason for doing that. What's our reason? Because not only should we not be idol worshipers who live for the things of this world, not only should we realize that living for Christ actually brings true happiness even in the midst of despair and trials, but ultimately the reason is this. It's because that is exactly what Christ did for us when he set aside his heavenly leisure to labor for our soul which was sick and dying and to labor even to the point of a cross. And if he can do that for us, We can hand out some bread, can't we? I think so. For if Christ hadn't exchanged his heavenly leisure for labor, we never in a million years could come to experience the eternal contentment that he brings, which leads us to our final point. The cure for spiritual scurvy comes from Christ's compassion, his commission, and finally, his contentment. In verse 20 and 21, Matthew tells us that everybody ate until they were stuffed. I mean, this is Thanksgiving Day full is what we're talking about here. He tells us that they were so full, there was so much food, that there was 12 baskets left over, which, you know, we don't have time to get into this today, but that's most likely representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But anyways, and all this goes to show us some pretty profound truths, very profound truths. And my oh my, is there a lot we can't unpack here because the time is ticking away. Do you remember back before Jesus' birth when Mary said her prayer and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Do you remember what she said? There's a part I'll show you. Maybe you don't remember. I didn't remember. Here's what she said. The speaking of God. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And this is very similar to what the psalmist says. He says in Psalm 132, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Now with this in mind, I want you to think back to Exodus chapter 16. What happened in Exodus chapter 16? Well, it's where Moses led the Israelites into the wilderness. And do you remember what came down from heaven? Manna. What's manna? Bread from heaven. Right? That's what it is. And there's a lot of fascinating things here about this miracle. For starters, if you remember the story, how often did they have to collect it? First day of the week? Store it all week? 
No, they didn't. It was daily. You're right. They had to collect what they needed and the amount only for that day. And whatever they collected beyond, what would happen overnight to it? Get all rotten, there'd be worms and stuff in it. It wouldn't last. They couldn't store it up. Now think about it. Why did God set it up that way for them? Why didn't he just let them pick it up on Monday and store it for the whole week or for the whole month or for the whole year? Certainly he could have done that, right? Of course. He did it because he was trying to teach them something. That's right. He was trying to teach them to trust and depend on him for their provision. He was saying, I want you to depend upon me. I don't want you to think the manna is what's saving you. I want you to know that it's me that's saving you. This is a lesson that humanity has been failing over and over to learn since the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve thought, we can't trust God. He doesn't really have our best interests at heart. Let's eat the forbidden fruit. In the desert, the Israelites thought, sure, Moses pulled off a miracle today, but who knows if it's going to be here tomorrow. Let's store up the manna. In Christ's day, the people saw the miracles. They saw the healings. They heard his divine teaching, but they said, nope. He can't really have our best interests at heart. I mean, look at Rome's still here. Their boot's not been removed. Let's crucify them. Same story is true of today, is it not? Where does everything we have come from? It's from God. And yet, what do we do? We want to store up our time. We want to store up our money. We want to store up our comfort, just like the Israelites cling to their extra manna that they stored up fruitlessly, pointlessly. And why do we do this? For honest, I think we have to admit it's because we aren't really trusting God, at least not as we should. We aren't convinced that he has our best interests at heart. But here's the thing. He does. Look at the baskets. There's 12 of them left over. That's how much extra there is. And why? Psalm 23, which we looked at with Craig a couple weeks ago during the Sunday school hour, here's what it says. I want to read it in full. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When David speaks of lying down in green pastures and lying beside still waters with a table prepared before him, what's he talking about here? He's talking about shalom. What's shalom? It's total peace. Complete satisfaction. Why? How? Because David knows that at the end of the valley of the shadow of death lies the house of the Lord where he will dwell forever, which is the ultimate shalom. In Zion's house, church, we will feast and weep no more, as we're going to sing in a moment. We will not be burned by the fire, for he is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood, but instead we are upheld, protected, and gathered up. And why? Simply because Christ was not 
protected from the fire of God's judgment. For though he himself is the Lord our God, he was consumed by the flood of wrath. And also that we could break bread with him in his father's house. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he tore the bread, passing it out to his disciples, which nourished them. And with this idea in mind, in John chapter 6, Jesus says this in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see what he's saying? He's saying that Christ died because his body was torn for you and me. He died so that his body could be torn for you and me. Why? So that we can be nourished by it to the point where we will live forever. We can have eternal life. Which means for those of us who have tasted eternal life, who have been cured from spiritual scurvy, we have but moments left to bring that cure, to bring that healing bread to those around us. To those who are headed not for eternal life, but to eternal death and eternal destruction. But if we're going to do so, what do we have to do? Be willing to sacrifice our leisure for this great labor. To set aside our time. To commit to things we, that might inconvenience our schedules. I can promise you as a pastor, my schedule gets inconvenient a lot. Inconvenienced a lot. I can promise you that leadership in this church, their schedule gets inconvenienced quite often. And why? Why? Because that's what's necessary for the labor. We must be willing to sacrifice our leisure for this labor. And this doesn't just apply to pastors. It doesn't just apply to deacons. It applies to even the least of these in this church. Even the brand new baby Christian who's just taking their first steps in Christ. Who must then learn to sacrifice their leisure for the labor. So how about you? Are you laboring to save those around us who desperately need the cure that we have? Or have you forgotten just how seriously deadly their condition is? The historians tell us that the cure for scurvy was actually discovered way, way, way back in 1497 when a man discovered the power of citrus. Okay, oranges. However, the historians tell us that this cure was lost in history. Repeatedly lost, in fact. It was forgotten. It was rediscovered, forgotten again, misconstrued, confused, and just generally messed around with for hundreds of years despite being a leading killer of men. Isn't that sad? And with this in mind, the same thing is happening in the church. See, back then, even though they had all the scientific proof, they even had people come along who were like, no, 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 that doesn't actually work, and they used their other arguments and got people not to believe it. Like, I'm not making this up or making this fit the, the texture. This is literally what happened. And yet, how often, church, does leisure-driven Christians forget the cure for spiritual scurvy or not pass that cure on to people who desperately need it? Maybe it's their kids. Maybe it's their friends, maybe it's their spouses or their co-workers who they never bothered giving the cure to. And why? Because they refuse to sacrifice their leisure for this great labor. 
And listen, just handing them a track, I mean, by all means do that, but that's not going to cut it. What we teach matters, but how we live matters too. We have little eyes watching in this church. They're watching how we approach our faith, how we approach the assembling of God's people together. They're watching. And so, so often, it's not just what is taught, it's what is caught that really does transfer that understanding of the cure of, of spiritual scurvy on. Isaiah 25, 6 says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. The feasts, and I say that in plural, are coming. Oh, so very soon. In Revelation 19, we read about two of them. One is a feast of judgment for the birds of the air who will dine upon the corpses of those slaughtered by God's wrath. And it's going to be such a slaughtering that the blood is going to go as high as the horse's legs, basically. And the other, we read right before that, is a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of rich food that is full of marrow, that is just splendid and full and more than we can possibly imagine. And what is that? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the question is, which feast are you headed for for one? And which feast are you living your life, sacrificing your leisure for the labor of pointing people how to be at the one feast and not the other? By the grace of God and the power of God, may we as a church faithfully bring this living bread, this eternal bread that comes from heaven to the sick and starving world around us who desperately need it. Father, I just pray for our church, Lord. These were some heavy truths today. But nevertheless, they are in your word, and therefore they are truths we need to hear. So, Father, convict us. Use guilt in a good way for us. Not to drive us to despair, not to drive us to self-loathing, but to drive us to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Lord, this life is a vapor. For many of us, it's almost gone. For many of us, it's halfway gone. For many of us, it might be gone tomorrow, and we don't even know. So, Father, help us to number our days, realizing that we have only so many minutes to labor for you before that great feast unfolds, and we sit down at the banquet table to receive the good things that we have stored up through our labor. Father, help us never forget that we don't do this by our power, but we do it by yours. And the second we get our eyes off of that, we are in trouble. I pray for me as the pastor of this church, Lord, that I would never forget that I have nothing to offer these people, nothing whatsoever. And all I can do is bring the bread from heaven to them. Father, we pray that as a church, we would all individually remember that. That it's not our job to, make, to produce the effects, but our job is to be faithful. So help us to be faithful in all things. Father, I pray for our church now. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to raise up leaders in this church. People who are willing to sacrifice their leisure for that labor. Who are willing to pursue Christ. To, as Paul said in Philippians, to consider everything he had as loss. So help us to count all things at loss so that we might gain Christ and gain him fully. 
Lord, I pray for our neighbors around us. In such a dark world right now, Lord, it's getting darker. Help us to reach the lost. Help us to be willing to step outside of our homes, to turn off the TV, to maybe cancel a weekend getaway, to actually take time to have unbelieving neighbors, friends, family members over so that we might share the gospel with them. Help us to live out righteousness and holiness before them so that the message is not darkened by hypocrisy. Help us to kill our sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us. We're going to sing our closing song, and then we're going to be coming before the table today for the Lord's Supper. But first we're going to sing, We Will Feast in the House of Zion.